Well, good morning. Good morning to you out there. Good morning to you amongst us. It's great to be together. It's, um, it's kind of better than you thought it might be, yeah? And worse as well. <laughs> I find, find it both ends. Um, but it is lovely. And uh, hopefully, uh, as our plans go forward, we'll be able to get all of us at some point together and take baby steps towards finally all being together, God willing. So keep praying to that. Uh, if you followed along in that first reading and then the second one in Matthew's Gospel and are aware a little bit more of that whole chapter, Matthew chapter 24, you'll be aware we're coming to a quite a complex part of the Bible and some of you have been looking at it through the week and you're kind of going, oh, what's going to happen here? Uh, just a couple of things to say. The Bible generally, in most parts, is very clear. We've been going through this Gospel, the Gospel of Matthew, and if you've been with us week on week, uh, it, it really is very straightforward. Jesus says he is God come amongst us, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he has come to die for our sins, you have no other hope apart from him. It's very clear and who he is emerges in a very profound and deep way that's quite striking. Uh, so much is clear but there are a couple of parts of the Bible that are more complex and challenging, sometimes simply because they say things we don't like. You know, often it's challenging the Bible uh, because it speaks about um, particularly the, the kind of hot topics, you know, the human sexuality and how it should be and men and women and our relationships and marriage and what that is and, and so on. And you've got this gender thing that um, what the Bible's saying is not hard, it's just that we find it difficult and so it's complex. But there are a few parts in the Bible where it genuinely is difficult because we are very much removed from the culture of Jesus, the way he thought theologically and biblically and the way he saw the universe that we're not quite in touch with. And so sometimes, in a few places, don't extend that to think it's all hard, no, no, not all of it's very difficult, but this chapter is one of those chapters that is complex. And so here's my plan today, I want us to dig into it together, I want us to work on what it says and as we do I'm going to take us into a whole new world of thought. Uh, and it is complex, uh, but don't freak out. It will be worth it. It'll change you. In fact, it will save you. It'll do a work amongst us that will be hugely profound for our spiritual well-being in this particular era and time that they're in. Now, I'm not going to claim I've got all the answers. Uh, many amongst us have different views on what this chapter means, and I want to say up front, that's okay. Uh, I think it is hard to come down definitively on exactly what this passage means. And so, on occasion, we need to acknowledge that there are some places where it's okay for Christians to disagree. This is one of those. So, what I want to do is go through, firstly, what I think is probably the most simple reading of this chapter. That is, if you come to this chapter uh, without much background, without much knowledge of the Bible, uh, without much awareness of the history of Jesus and the Jewish context that he's in, and you just read it flat, plain, then I'm going to take us through what that reading might look like and where it will land you. Um, and that'll be a good place, that'll be okay. But then, having done that and applied it a little bit to us, I'm going to step back and go, actually, there's more going on here. I want to show you why I think there's more going on and how it's deeper than we might have appreciated and enter into some of the complexity uh, and apply all of that. Now, it's going to be a challenge, so let's uh, pray for God's help as we do all of this together. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We do recognise that uh, it is so clear in so many places and where it's not, it's because of us. So give us clear hearts, minds, to come to your word, ready to learn. 
and please change us by this activity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me take you through what is kind of the most simple reading of what this chapter says, the first thought that you would have in reading this chapter, and the first thought you would have is that he's talking about the end. I mean, he says, he uses the language of the end numbers of times, chapter 24, verse 3, um, the disciples ask him a question, when will this happen, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Well, that sounds like he's talking about the end of the age, the end of history, uh, the end that's in the future for us. Jesus gives an answer, uh, verse 4, about the signs of life prior to that end. And there's a whole bunch of them. There's verse 4, the danger of deception that will come, many claiming to be the Messiah, though not being the Messiah. Verse 6, there'll be wars, rumours of wars. Uh, Don't be alarmed, such things must happen. But look at the end of verse 6, the end is still to come. So he's still talking about the end. Then you get verse 7, wars and nations against nations, kingdoms and so on, famines, earthquake in various places. He says these are all the beginning of the birth pains. They're not the end yet, they're just the beginnings of the birth pain. Verse 9, being handed over, put to death, those that love Jesus will be hated by all nations. Verse 10, there'll be many who turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. This is the character and shape of the time before the end. The love, verse 12, of many will grow cold but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. See again the language of the end. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as testimony to all natures. Then the end will come. Now, you just read through those first four, it seems very straightforward. He's talking about the end of history and all of the things that will happen in history prior to that end as warnings about being prepared for the horrible time that it will be. It seems fairly straightforward. And in fact, if you go through further, you'll see he talks about the end again a number of times. Verse 21 sounds like he's talking about the very great end where there'll be great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Verse 21 sounds like some great terrible time in the future. You get also the language there of verse 29, where the sun is darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from its skies. I mean, that sounds like not just the end, but the whole dissolution of the universe, the stars falling from the sky. And then verse 30, the language of the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, All the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he'll send his angels out with a loud trumpet. They'll gather the elect from the four winds. That sounds like the great end of time, the great end of history. And to learn this lesson, uh, knowing that these things are right at the door. You see, it seems fairly straightforward if you read it just fresh. He's talking about some great end time and the nature of life prior to that end time and how dreadful it will be. If that's how you read it, that it's all about a future event, the great end of history and the tribulation and distress leading up to that time, if that's how you read it, I get it. Respect to you. (laughs) Yeah, it, it can look like that. And if you read it that way, I did urge you that you'll end up in a good place if you think carefully about the text and apply it profoundly to your life, you'll end up in a really good place because it drives home some really critical lessons that are worth embracing. Let me give you some of those. The world that we're living in is not going to just roll on. Isn't that the big message here? That 
that Jesus is saying one day the world will end and it won't happen because we don't change over to solar quickly enough. Do you know what I mean? It won't happen because we don't recycle quickly enough. It'll happen because the Lord Jesus says it'll happen. He'll finish it. He'll bring it all to a completion. He'll bring the great end and everyone will see. The Lord Jesus will return again, not as a carpenter in veiled fresh weekly, but he'll come in glory and power and majesty and might and he will gather his people and it will be the end. And it's a deeply sobering message about the nature of our lives and the world that we live in. This life is not it. This world is not it. You know, we have lived in a context where in the last bunch of years, we've kind of begun to embrace the thing that you might call utopianism. Utopia just means thinking the world is going to become a wonderful heaven on earth, it's going to be a beautiful place, utopia. And we've lived in that kind of context the last bunch of years where, in fact, there's this new language just emerged, I think it's just emerged, or at least I've just picked up on it, where we're hearing people say there's no planet B. It's kind of a really cute little phrase. Who's heard no planet B? Yeah, okay. Who hasn't heard of it? All right, you need to get out more. I'm in touch in a way that you aren't. Um, there's, there's no planet B. What, what they're trying to say is that this is it. This is, this is the thing we've got and we, if we don't look after it, if we don't do the environment right, the climate right and get our life fixed up, it's not going to last. But if we get it all right, we can see it last. It's, there's no planet B. But here's the D. Matthew chapter 24 says there is a planet B. And it is this one. Planet A is the one to come. This is the one that will be beset with famine, wars, rumours of wars, earthquakes, birth pains of disaster, deception and hatred and hostility. The increase of wickedness will, will be the case in this one. Don't buy into the cultural story that if we just get our act together, we can make this world a wonderful place for us and our grandchildren and their children and it will just keep going on. No, no, the Bible comes and brings a very different perspective. This world will not last, though we ought to care for it while we can. But Jesus' words are very clear. Life on this planet, planet B, will be marked by disaster. You know, um, I think the pandemic has been quite a shock for our world. Um, you get the sense, don't you, that people have lived imagining uh, that we are more in control of our life, more in control of the environment and better and better able to manage it. And suddenly this tiny little thing of virus comes and has decimated our world. Our, our economies, uh, our lives are shut down because of a tiny, a tiny virus. We, we imagine that ought never have happened to us. We, we ought not be out of control. We're making the world better. But the pandemic is one small taste of what Matthew 24 actually teaches all those centuries ago, that planet B is like this. You know, one of the um, things that's emerged in the last little while, you know, there's all been discussions around whether church should um, really obey the government restrictions, restrictions on meeting and so on, or whether we should obey Christ and throw off all of those things and just gather as church and so on. There's all been that discussion. It has um, kind of nudged me back again into some uh, ancient reading and um, back many hundreds of years ago, there's a man called Richard Baxter, there's many people like this who, he was a dissenter, he was one of the ones who 
was in prison a number of times for his faith against the government. The government put him in prison. But he wrote quite a little bit about how you ought to obey the government where possible, and particularly when they closed down churches in, during a pandemic. And he talked about the appropriateness of that, where the government might close down churches because of a war, an army that comes through, disease and so on, for the health of the society. And he recognises the need to give to Caesar what is Caesar. And, he, and there's a whole theology that he's formed around this kind of thinking about what you do in a pandemic, what you do in a war, what you do when the government speaks like this. Now, why is that the case? Many hundreds of years ago, someone would have thought all of that through. And why haven't we? Because many centuries ago, it was life as normal. You expected another army to sweep through. You expected there to be another plague that would wipe out so many. You expected a child to die in infancy. You expected you not to make old age. You expected disease to be part of your lot. And so thinking it all through was part of the way they engaged from the scriptures to make sense of life in this age. Whereas we have brought some sense of control which has fooled us in thinking we can control it all. And so we're taken by surprise when actually nature rules us. Well, Matthew 24 tells you that behind all of that grief and pain and disaster in our world stands the sovereign hand of the Lord Jesus who rules even this and is taking it to its end point. During this time, false prophets will come, false teachers will come. Do not fall for those that sell miracles and signs and wonders as evidence that somehow they're in touch and you ought to follow them. Be discerning, says Jesus, in these last days before the great end. Be aware of the hostility that will come. Be forewarned that you might be forearmed. Christ will return. And it will be a dramatic end of the universe and the recreation of a new one. Are you ready for that? Are you prepared to be ushered into the presence of this great judge? What matters most is not the life that you can create here, but what matters most is that you are right with the God of the universe. Are you? And what matters most, therefore, in the midst of hostility and deception, that you do not, by God's strength, allow the love of Christ to grow cold in you. You know, if, if you read this chapter as if it's all about the end, and the end that's being talked about is in our future, and the time we're in is expecting great tribulation, it will be a great blessing and help to you and to me and to us. You can't go far wrong. Praise God that many care about these things. Pray that many more do care about these things. But I want to suggest to you that there is more going on here than simply what you get from a plain reading of the text. First thought reading. What, you know, what me as a 21st century Westerner just driving into the Bible for the first time, get out of it. There's much more going on here. If you understand Jesus in his context, in the theology of the Old Testament and the way he sees the world and the way he sees the end, you'll see far more emerge in this chapter. And so I want to take us through that. Let me give you some indications that there's more going on here. The first one is there and it's a big one, it's at verse 34. 
Notice this, at the end of Jesus talking about the end and all the climactic experiences of the end, look what he says, verse 34, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Wow. Do you hear what he just said? That all these things will happen while this generation standing in front of him are still alive. Now that makes you pause and go, well, hang on. <laughs> I thought this end that Jesus was talking about is right at the end of history, in my future, our future, 21 centuries later. But Jesus says, no, no, all these things that I'm talking about will have happened in the generation of those first people standing in front of him. How is that possible? Well, many have noticed this and found themselves struggling with that idea, of course, and some have drawn the conclusion that language of this generation doesn't really mean this generation, isn't plainly, literally this generation. It's a non-literal idea that refers to a, pre, a future generation. Um, now, the difficulty with that, and I, this, I have some sympathy with trying to make sense of these things, of course, but the challenge with it is verse chapter 23. If you come back to chapter 23, Jesus there talks about the woes and judgments upon the generation of Israel that he was standing in front of. And last week we went through this, Jez took us through the woes, the terrible judgment of Jesus upon the, the, the leaders, the hypocrisy of them. But if you look there in uh, verse 35, and so upon you, people standing in front of him, will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Belkiah. Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temper and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all of this will come on this generation. The language of this generation seems most naturally uh, to be meaning, literally, the people standing in front of him. So, if verse 34 in chapter 24 is talking about this generation, people standing in front of him, and that all of these things will happen while they're alive, what do we then make of the end that he's talking about? What do we make of verse 29, the sun being darkened, stars falling from the sky? What do we make of the Son of Man in heaven and all the people on earth mourning and seeing the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven? All of this will happen in this... It's a bit more complex than it first appeared. Another little hint that it's more complex is verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Well, hang on. If Jesus is talking entirely about things that will happen in our future, about a worldwide cataclysmic event where nature itself, the stars will fall literally from the sky, and if he's talking about that, what good is it for people in Judea to flee to mountains near Judea? Like, what are you going to escape if the whole planet's going to dissolve? Verse 16 suggests, actually, that something that's going on is a is a close geographical thing, such that people in Judea can escape it by going to the mountains. Just a hint again that perhaps there's more going on here than we first realise. And even the language there of verse 30, the Son of Man in heaven. Look with me at that verse. You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, what is that a reference to? 
Well, if you know your Bible, and here's the point I'm making earlier, that if you just come to it without knowing your Bible, the first thought reading is it's all about the future, but then there's a few things that don't quite fit that. But if you know a bit more of your Bible, you start to see, well, Jesus is perhaps talking about something more complex. Well, that language of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory is picking up a a sentence from the Old Testament. It's from the book Daniel, which Jesus has actually referenced, Daniel chapter 7. Keep your hand there in Matthew 24 and come back to Daniel 7. This will give us some insight into the complexity of this chapter that you might not appreciate from a first reading. You have a look at Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. In verse 9, Daniel reports having a vision and it's a vision of the throne in heaven where the Ancient of Days takes his seat his clothing being white as snow, the hair on his head white as wool, throne flaming with fire, river. It's a glorious picture with thousands upon thousands attending him and the courts and so on. It's a picture of the throne room of heaven with God seated on the throne. Verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. That's the same language of Matthew 24. He approaches the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, into the throne of heaven. Now notice this though, verse 13, coming with the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven. That usually speaks to us of someone coming towards us. But actually he's coming, but he's coming to the Ancient of Days. That's what he's coming on the clouds to. He's coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. He's led into his presence. And verse 14, he's given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He is led on the clouds of heaven into the ancient of days to be given all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth. All authority such that his kingly rule is recognised by all people. People of all nations, tribes and tongues honour him and worship him. He has given authority, glory and power over everything. Come back with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24 verse 30. And then all peoples of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and if you drop down I mean you can hear the language it's straight out of Daniel 7 but the Bible tells you it's straight out of Daniel 7 because you look down to a footnote there's verse 30 if you've got a Bible with footnotes see Daniel 7 verse 13 and 14 the passage which you just looked at this is not something I've made up it's everyone else sees this as well but notice this verse 30 the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory if you go back to its original context in Daniel 7, is a reference to the Son of Man coming into the presence of the Ancient of Days on the clouds to receive all authority, power and glory. Now think with me. When did Jesus receive all authority in heaven and on earth? When did that happen in history? 
Don't, it's just risky, isn't it? Uh, when did it happen? Well, I know, I know the time that it's already happened by, and it's Matthew 28. Do you remember Matthew 28? The end of this gospel, just a few chapters. Jesus stands in front of his disciples, having died, being raised on a cross, crucified, and then raised to life again three days later. He stands in front of his disciples and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I have been the son of man who has come on the clouds to the ancient of days to receive all authority in heaven and on earth. It's already happened. In my death and then resurrection. Colossians chapter 2 reinforces this idea. There's a number of passages that reinforce this idea. That it's in the cross of Jesus that he defeats all principalities and powers and gains authority over all things. He is raised to be the exalted Lord of the universe in his death and resurrection. John 12 says the same thing. Verse 30, in a sense, happened during the lifetime, verse 34, of that generation standing there in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, a plain reading won't give that to you because you won't know the Old Testament context and Daniel 7 and all the background, but when you have all of that in your mind and you see how much Jesus uses the Son of Man language, and in fact, in a chapter or two, he'll say it to the high priest that you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven and they tear their robes and blasphemer. How dare you claim Daniel 7 to be you? It's all there to be seen when you understand the Old Testament. These things are hints that it's not that simple. There's more going on here. And I'll tell you why. It's because the end is more complex than we think it is. It's more complex than we think it is. Come back and let me show you how this works. Come back to chapter 23. Chapter 23, Jesus has just pronounced woes on the nation, on the leaders... And he says these dreadful words in verse 38. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets sent to you, how often I've longed to gather you, but you're unwilling. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Judgment comes upon you. Do you remember a few chapters earlier, the parable of the tenants and the vineyard? If you're with us in church or been reading, you will have known this one, where the tenants were a picture of Israel being given so much and failing. And Jesus says, they'll be taken, the, the vineyard will be taken away from them and given to others. Here is Jesus in chapter 23 saying, Woe, your house will be taken from you. You will be judged. It's over. And then in chapter 24, Jesus leaves the temple and was walking away with his disciples he, and, and they came and talked about the building, the temple, and he said, verse 2, Do you see all of these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Jesus has just pronounced woes on the nation, the house being destroyed. And what does he mean by house? Well, he means the nation, but he means the literal. And he comes in chapter 24 and says, the temple, this glorious temple, demolished. Every stone demolished. And with a few years' time, in AD 70, it was. 
literally, torn stone from stone. It's the most dreadful thing that happened in Israel's history and the mark, the scar of it is still there in the nation in Jerusalem. You can see the consequence of this, where the Roman army came up against Jerusalem. Luke chapter 21 gives you the details as well. The Roman army came up against Jerusalem, laid siege to it, destroyed the city and it was the most dreadful time. We have records of this event from other historians at the time. It was, it was a massive event in Israel's history. The, the, the city was destroyed, the inhabitants were slaughtered and the temple, every stone was pulled off and left exactly the way it is now. Nothing there except a foundation. You know, um, some of you can remember uh, the World Trade Centre being hit by the aeroplanes. Uh, some of you can remember where you were when that happened, yes. Uh, I can remember standing in front of the TV in the lounge room. I had um, one of the Pinsack children with us because Dean was actually in America and flying back and we were It was a dreadful time. You know, 9-11, uh, we just have to say 9-11, you know what we're talking about, yeah? You say AD 70 and it's seared into the Jewish song, song, consciousness. AD 70 was when their heart and soul was ripped out, when the temple was destroyed, where it meant the end of sacrifice, the end of priesthood, the end of the temple as the heart, massive event. Now this triggers verse 3, some questions from the disciples. Tell us, they say, when will this happen? And what will, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, hang on, get this. When will this happen? And then they add this other question, and, the, and your coming and the end. Why do they add those other questions? Because for the temple to be destroyed, in their mind, meant the end. You see, the temple is a place where God's footstool is on earth. It's the place he connects to the planet, to humanity. If it's destroyed, it's the end. And so when Jesus says it's going to be destroyed, well, they go, whoa, whoa, when's that going to happen? And the end's going to, when is it all going to happen? And Jesus starts answering in verse 4. And I dare say, if I could pretend what's going on in his mind, as he starts answering, he does this thing in his head. He goes, you ready for this? It's going to be complex. Let me take you on a ride. Because the end is more complex than you realise. You're asking about the end and my coming in the temple. It's much more complex than you've appreciated. And verse 4, he gives the signs of the end, whatever that end is. And the end will have all of this preceded. It'll be a period of history which will be terrible. Wars, rumours of wars, famine, kingdoms fighting against, pestilence and so on. There'll be hostility against Christians. Many Christians, will their love will grow cold. Many will fall away, deceived. It'll be a dreadful time. And verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. Well, get this, verse 14, according to Paul, has been fulfilled. Now, I know you go, what? Well, if you chase through into Colossians, Paul talks about the gospel being preached to every creature under heaven in his lifetime. Romans chapter 10, he quotes a text from the Old Testament suggesting that the gospel has been preached to the whole world. He uses the same Greek word as Jesus uses in verse 14. Now, that's not the way we think about preaching to the world, but 
That's the way the Jew, Paul, thought about the fulfilment of verse 14. It had happened in their lifetime. And then the end comes. Which end? Well, verse 15, the end of the temple in AD 70. What, what, what? How do you get that? Well, that's the Judea reference. Let those in Judea flee to the mountains. How are they to know they should flee? Well, because verse 15, when they see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel, they should know now to flee. What was that sign? Well, Luke's account, Luke 21, suggests it's the, the occasion when Rome, the Roman army, surrounded Jerusalem and by that act desolated the holy city. And in fact, in history, in AD 68, we have evidence two years before the final destruction, the Christians in Jerusalem understood this reference to the Roman army being around them and laying siege to them and they fled from there to the mountains and survived. This has been taken by many, I take it too, to be a reference from verse 51 to 21, a reference to the destruction of the temple, the end, the end of Israel, God's judgment upon them in some sense, they still continue, of course, but the end of Israel as a way of access to God, as a covenant of works, it's the end. Because the death of Jesus means you now no longer need sacrifice, you no longer need priesthood, you no longer need to go to a temple. It's by grace alone and mercy in Jesus that you're saved. And with the death of Jesus, the temple was on borrowed time. And finally, it came to its end. The end came. But then... Jesus talks about verse 22, I take it down to verse 30, verse 31. The things that happen in the cross, which are finally fulfilled in the very end of history, when he will come in a way that's manifest to all, on the clouds, to call his elect, where the, the universe will be dissolved and a new creation formed out of it. Now, you might be finding yourself now confused by the whole thing. Well, hang on, he's, I thought he was talking about the end. No, no, he's talking about the end. The cross as the end, AD 70 as the end, and the life up to the final end. And he's doing that because the end in Bible think is more complex than we realise. Let me give you an illustration to make sense of it. It's an old illustration I've used a number of times before. Forgive me, I only come up with one illustration in my life and this is it. And uh, it's the illustration of the high-rise building being demolished. And, um, you know, if you want to get rid of it, demolish a high-rise building, uh, the easiest way to do it is to put explosive around the foundation, get a long way back, push a button, boom, the explosion happens, the building's destroyed and it collapses and is demolished. But here's the thing. When is the building destroyed? When's the end of the building? Is it when the explosion happens? Or is it when the building collapses finally? Well, it's both end. And in fact, naturally, it all just is a part of it. It just happens all at the same time. Bang, demolished. 
But if you look closely, you'll actually see that the explosion can happen and the building just hangs for a moment. And then gravity grabs hold and it collapses. So there is a bit of a separation between the explosion and the end. The end has happened, but it's yet to happen. Now, how does this make sense of Matthew 24? I take it what Jesus is saying is, you want to know about the end? It's complex. My death in a few days' time is the end. It's the explosion that blew apart the foundations of this age, that tore the heart out of all that had gone before, out of the sacrificial system, the temple, the priest, fulfilled it and tore it apart and judged Israel. The building starts collapsing and the first floor of collapse is AD 70, where finally God shows the fulfilment of the end in the cross, in the end of Israel. But then a strange thing happens. God reaches into the building and stops it. Stops it collapsing anymore. He holds it. He holds it for one reason. To make it possible for more people to escape the building. For more people on our planet to be saved. Because if, it all, if the end all just happened as it ought in one quick package, we would never have had a chance to hear the gospel of forgiveness and be saved. We would have been lost. But God in His grace extends the end so that it happens, it happens in AD 70 and He holds it off so that it doesn't finally happen yet. But He's holding it. There's nothing keeping it up except his goodwill and all the conditions of the end have been met they're all met in the generation of those first followers there's no more conditions to be met in a sense it's now in the hands of Jesus who will bring it down when he is determined you see the disciples asked Jesus when will all of this happen and he says well it's complex because what God will do by his grace is an extraordinary thing you have had no hint at in the Old Testament. God is now holding it up. What lessons do we learn from this? I think I've got four or five. First is this. The world has an end. This is planet B, not planet A. There's another whole creation to come. Do not invest in this one as if it's going to last. Do not dream that this is the place where utopia can be formed. Don't live as this life will just keep going on for your children and your children's children. Snap out of the cultural shaping that this world is it. It's simply not true. Jesus says these lovely words, verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You can trust them. AD 70 showed you how much you can trust them. Do not invest here and live here as if this is it. Second, we are in the last days. Verses 1 to 14 of, well, 3 to 14 of chapter 24 describes the time before the end. We're in it. You don't need to worry about trying to identify when those last horrible days will start. We're in them. We are in that time of wars and rumours of wars, of 
famine, of earthquake, of deception, of deceiving prophets and signs and wonders and miracles, of false messiahs. We're living in it. Be warned. Don't be naive as Christians. Be discerning. Now is the time you need more discernment than at any other time. Be warned. Do not go after the spectacular and the miraculous as if somehow that's the answer. Keep your head deeply in God's word that we might be discerning in the midst of this. We are in the last days, so take care to yourself and others. This is the time when the love of many will grow cold. It's the time when there will be hostility and people will give up the faith. Don't expect the Christian life to be easy and wonderful. You need to take heed to yourself in these days. Do you know this pandemic is a wake-up call, isn't it? We've been without church for five months. Streaming has been wonderful. But I dare say there's a great lurking danger that many are beginning to feel which is the slow slide of their Christian life into apathy. And I'll tell you why. When the Christian life has no public expression, when there's no requirement to do anything physically, publicly, that's uniquely mine as a follower of Christ, like get out of my house with my kids and come to church, when that disappears and I can just do my private Christian life, the danger to you is immense. It's the danger of a slow, private Christian life that slowly dwindles in its strength and capacity and fades. Your love is in danger of growing cold. Now, I know for many of you it's impossible to come. There's health issues, there's risks, and so I get all of that. But just be deeply prayerful that the Lord would hold you during this time. Look for ways to find fellowship as much as you can during this time. And look for ways, God willing, by His grace, to actually get back and be involved in church when you can. Deeply important, it matters so much. Let me give you two last thoughts. There's an anchor in all of this. It's Jesus. He can teach about the last days and how dreadful they'll be because He's in control of them. He's the sovereign Lord over them. And so if you are in his hands, you can trust him, look to him, keep clinging to him, because nothing will come upon you except that he brings. Trust him now more than ever. His words will not pass away. Last, preach the gospel. There's only one reason Jesus has done the extraordinary and extended the end when it should have all just come at once, extend, held up the building. There's only one reason he's doing that and it's not so that you can move to the coast somewhere, that you can have a great life somewhere, that you can go and have a tree change. It's so that more people will be saved. Use this time. Preach to your friends, to your family, your workmates. Preach to yourself. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of your Son that are so clear in the midst of the complications that we are in a time of danger. Help us trust you in this time. Help us particularly step up and take heed to our spiritual life and the spiritual life of those around us. 
Please guard us and keep us, we ask. Please cause your gospel to go out and bring many more in and use us to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.